0: Now, by a show of hands, how many people here like to ski or snowboard? That seems right for Florida. There's not a lot. Two, three, four, five, maybe 10 people. So like I said, that that seems about right. Now, I'll admit that I once tried my hand at snowboarding as a kid, which was when I was reminded of my terrible balance and lack of coordination. And so I could never make it down the bunny slopes without terrible falls. So I am impressed by the 10 of you who like to ski or snowboard that you can do that. And this week, I was impressed as I read the unique skiing story of a lady named Danielle Umstead. Danielle is a world-class athlete. She's a skiing champion. In fact, she has this long list of awards and titles to her name. And what makes her story so unique is that Danielle has accomplished all this despite the fact that she is almost completely blind. When she is flying down a mountain at 70 miles per hour, she can't see where she's going. So how does she do this? Well, inside her helmet, she has a headset where she receives instructions from her guide, who is also her husband, Rob. Rob goes first down the course. Danielle is right behind him. The whole time, he's telling her about the terrain and the turns that are right there in front of them. She has to trust and follow everything he says if she wants to get down the mountain safely. Danielle says this has taught her two things. One is the importance of communication. The other is the importance of trust. If she does not trust and follow everything that Rob communicates to her, she will find herself in a heap of trouble. That's a it's a lot of faith to put in someone, right? You know, as Christians, we're supposed to live by faith in Jesus, which, which includes trusting and obediently following all the commands he communicates to us in his word in the Bible. Sadly, when we fail to do this, we find ourselves in a heap of trouble. If we have faith in in Jesus, then that should result in obedience to Jesus. Now, keep in mind, obedience to Jesus, though, does not save us. Now, obedience is the result of our salvation. It's not the, the cause of it. And up to this point, in his letter to the Roman church, Paul has gone to great lengths to show that, that good works cannot save us. And as we turn together this morning to Romans chapter four, we're going to find Paul addressing some of these things again. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. Romans chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 913, page 913, Romans chapter 4. And again, if you've been with us during this series so far, or if you're familiar with the book of Romans, come to this point in chapter 4, you might think to yourself, well, this sounds a lot like some of the things Paul's already said. And the reason that paul has to talk about these things over and over is because he knew that there would still be people listening to his letter sitting there arguing that works are enough to save them just like there are people in churches today who still believe that works are enough to save them so to help drive this point home paul is going to use the example of abraham in his day there were many jews in paul's day who looked to their ancestor abraham as an example of someone whose obedience made him right before God. But Paul is going to show that the truth is Abraham's not an example of being saved by works, but being saved by faith. The question was, did they have faith like their forefather Abraham? And the question for us is, what can we learn from Abraham's faith? So let's look together. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this. What then shall we say that Abraham... Our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Let's hold our place right here in Romans chapter 4. Let me share some of Abraham's story with you and what led to that moment in Abraham's life that Paul is referring to here. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. God calls him to leave his home, his family, to leave everything behind and to go to a land that, well, Abraham didn't know anything about. God promised to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him and to bless all the people of the earth through him. So Abraham, he packed everything up and he went. And as he journeyed, God promised to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. God kept Abraham and his wife safe, gave them great success. At one point, God promised to give him descendants like the dust of the earth. But after some years had passed, Abraham was still childless. And that's when, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, he said, you know what, you see all the stars up there in the sky, you go ahead. You count them if you can. He so said, the same is going to be true for your offspring. God promised him again. He said, you will have a child. And that's when we read that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But if you go and look in the Old Testament, you'll find that Genesis 15 doesn't say Abraham believed God, And then joined the local church, performed a hundred good works, got baptized, was circumcised, started to tithe, and then he was saved. It doesn't say that. It says he believed God, and as a result of that, that faith, righteousness was credited to him. That's a big deal that we need to understand. You see, if we work for something, like in our jobs, we know that we earn our pay, our wages. It's an obligation from our employer, right? We deserve that money. I learned that lesson at a young age. The first job that I ever had was cleaning office buildings for my dad when I was in elementary school. And I made $2 a Saturday to take out all the trash. I felt rich. But then I got promoted to take out the trash and to vacuum. And that's when I started making $4 a Saturday. I was really living large as an elementary school kid. And then cleaning toilets came later, and I started to learn that the more work I did, the more that I was paid. And I was earning that money. When I opened up my little wallet, I could say, look at all this money that I've earned. Well, this is how many people in Paul's day and in American churches today see (laughs) salvation. They look at their life, and they essentially say, I'm sure that I've earned salvation. I mean, look at all these good things I've done. Surely I'm saved. I'm getting to heaven because I've worked hard. I've done all these good things. You might have noticed how many times I use the word I in those sentences. Because if salvation is about works, well, that's all about me. And boasting is all that there's going to be. But you know, if salvation is about works, then why did Jesus die on the cross at all? It seems a little pointless. More than that, if salvation is about works, then how can we be sure that we're saved anyways? I mean, how many good works does it take? Where's the chart or the scale? How can we be sure? Is there any certainty? Now, the good news is that it's not about works for us, just like it wasn't about works for Abraham. When Abraham stood there on that day, back in Genesis 15, he was not a perfect man. Sure, he was obedient at times, but now he also sinned and made plenty of mistakes. He didn't earn that righteousness that was being credited to his account. It came because of his faith. The same thing is true for us today. The moment we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we are justified in God's sight. See, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, 1 Peter 2 tells us he took all our sin on himself when he died. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when we put our faith in him, his righteousness, his righteousness is put on our account. We didn't earn that. It was given to us And when God looks at us, he doesn't see the things that we've done. He sees the righteousness of Jesus that has made us right in his sight. It's not about our works. It's about our faith in Jesus. And the point that Paul is making is that Abraham's faith justified him before God. And believers, so does ours. Our faith makes us right before God. That's why Paul said in verse five that the one who trusts God, their faith is credited as righteousness. So here's the thing. I want you, all of us here today, to look deeply into your heart and ask this question. Are you relying on the things that you can do to get to heaven? Or are you relying entirely on Jesus? I ask that because many people are sure that they can earn their way to the Lord. They can earn their way to heaven. And not just people out in the world. People in churches believe this. And not just people sitting in the pews. People behind the pulpit believe this. Earlier this year, research was conducted by a Christian university, and it revealed that one-third of senior pastors in this country believe that good works alone can result in salvation. Now, I promise you, you will never hear that taught in this church because you will never find that teaching in the Bible. What you will find in the Bible is that we can never earn the righteousness that we need to stand before God. We are hopelessly separated from him. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all that changes. And that's not all. Let's see what Paul says next. Look at verse 9. He said, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now let's stop right here for just a minute. So Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Paul's made that pretty clear. Of course, there were still Jews who were saying in Paul's day things like, uh, yeah, Paul, sure, Uh, Abraham, faith, that's all well and good, but Paul, Abraham was still circumcised the way that God commanded him to. So, you know, we think all these Gentiles who have faith in Jesus, that's fine, but they need to be circumcised too if they want to be saved. That was a big argument in the early church. So Paul points something out to them. In Genesis 15, that's where we're told Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. But that happened before Abraham was circumcised. In fact, it happened more than a decade before God commanded Abraham to be circumcised. More than that, it happened hundreds of years before the law was given to Moses. Well, if Abraham was made right in God's sight before he was circumcised and without the law, what does that mean? means that these things weren't meant to save us. You see, circumcision was an outward sign. It was never a means of salvation. The law law can't save us. It just shows us how much we need to be saved. In fact, I like how one pastor put it. He said, trying to escape the penalty of the law by the works of the law, that's like trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. You're only going to make the problem worse. See, those things can't save us. Only faith in Jesus can bring the salvation that we need which is incredible when you think about it. Yet there's this natural reaction of people to say, even today, they'll say, that's crazy. It's crazy, this idea that faith is what it takes. There must be something that we have to do. But what so many people call crazy, God calls grace. And so Paul said, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be grace. Grace, that free and undeserved God in his great grace is offering a right relationship with him to all people. But it's only when we come in humble faith, fully trusting in him and not ourselves, that we finally step into that grace. See, Abraham's faith allowed him to experience grace, and believers, so does ours. Our faith allows us to experience God's grace. The moment we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we receive the forgiveness of our sins, salvation of our souls. But more than that, as we step into God's gracious promises, Paul also says, we become a part of the offspring of Abraham. Now, I'm going to make the assumption that most of us here are Gentiles. That is, we can't trace our physical heritage back to the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not Jewish, most of us here. But Paul is saying that by faith in Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family. And we can claim Abraham as part of our spiritual lineage. We're in the same line of faith as Abraham. I don't think we always realize how big a deal that is. I was blessed to grow up in church as a kid. And when you grow up in church as a kid, there are some classic songs that you are taught. Okay? Like, Jesus Loves Me. Of course, that is the most classic. Or, Deep and Wide, which is a fan favorite of mine. Or Zacchaeus was a wee little man, the song that made all of us go out and climb trees as soon as we were done. And of course there was a song, Father Abraham. How many people have heard that song, sung that before? All right. Oh, some of you are missing out. But you know, it's a really simple song. It's the same verse over and over. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll read you the lines, okay? (sighs) No, 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 I, I... I love you all, so this is why I'm going to read it for you, and I'm not going to sing it. So the song goes this way. It says, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then you do that over and over. After each verse, you add some motion into it. So you start swinging your right arm, then your left arm. You're doing your right foot and your left foot. Not all this has to do with what I'm, I'm going to talk about next. But me and my friend Seth, we'd wait for those final words where they said, chin up, turn around, sit down, and we would spin and jump and land on our knees as hard as we could. So this morning, I had the sudden realization of why my knees hurt the way that they do. <laughs> but as a kid, as a kid, I never understood the significance of that simple little song. I am one of them, and so are you. I mean, the idea that... I, That a Gentile could call Abraham his or her forefather in the faith. That is, that's incredible. I think some of us were so used to some of these truths, we we lose sight of that. The moment we go to Jesus in faith for the salvation that he promises, we become a part of the family of God. Uh, The same family of Abraham who believed in God's promises. So all those Jews who are trying to say, well, yeah, but Paul, we're descendants of Abraham. Paul says, yeah. So we're all Jews and Gentiles, circumcised or uncircumcised, who believe in Jesus. Church, that's all because of God's grace that these things are true. And saving faith clings to grace, not to good works. Let's remember that. Now, don't misunderstand me. In the end, you'll find saving faith doing good works. But we don't do good works as Christians to earn or to keep our salvation. We do it out of the overflow of our salvation. Our faith in Christ, that's when we're saved, but that faith shouldn't end in the moment of salvation. Let me show you what I mean through Abraham's example. Let's keep going in Romans 4. Let's look at verse 18. Paul says this. He says, Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, in the words words, it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Against all hope, Abraham believed. What's Paul talking about here? Uh, let me... Tell you something else that made Abraham's faith so incredible. When God plucked Abraham out of obscurity in Genesis chapter 12 and called him to be the forefather of a great nation, well, that promise included the promise, obviously, of having kids, right? Well, at that time in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was 75 years old. And his wife, Sarah, she was 65. Okay, so I guess kids aren't necessarily impossible, I suppose. So this. Spry 75 year old Abraham sets off to follow God's call, and then 10 years pass by when Genesis 15 rolls around. And God tells Abraham, You know, to count all the stars. No kids yet. Abraham was 85 years old, Sarah was 75. Okay, we're pushing the limits here a little bit, God. Clearly, this is going to take a miracle of sorts. But remember, Abraham believed. But you know, God loves doing things that are truly miraculous. And what I mean by that is he loves doing things that we can't explain away naturally, that we can't look at and say, I guess that's possible. Now, he likes doing things that leave us saying, only God, only God could do that right there. And that's why God did things like in Judges 7, he told Gideon, oh, you have too many soldiers to go fight that big army. Why don't you take 300 men and you go do that? That way you know that I did it. Or in the book of Joshua, you know, he sent Joshua and Israel and they just marched around the city of Jericho for seven days. No, no siege works, no battering ram or ladders, and then God just toppled the walls. That's why people were so dumbfounded when Jesus was here and he was instantly healing people who were sick and paralyzed and blind. God is always doing those things that we can't look at and say, oh, sure, man could do that. No, he does those things that cause us to say that right there, that's a God thing. And that's what he did with Abraham. You see, Abraham believed God in Genesis 15 when he was 85 years old. But God wasn't done. God let another 14 years go by without giving Abraham and Sarah a child. And believe me, Abraham, he had his failings of faith and obedience during that time. But then, then when Abraham was 99 years old, that's what Paul is fast-forwarded to in the passage we just read. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was 99 years old. His wife was 89. God promised again that the child that he kept telling about, that promise was going to be fulfilled. And at that point in his life, Abraham was almost 100 years old. He understood that the probability of him and Sarah on their own conceiving a child, that that probability was zero. He realized that. This would have to be a God thing. And Abraham had two choices. He could become weak in his faith and doubt God. Or, or, he could keep trusting God to fulfill his promises. And Paul says that 99-year-old Abraham, he didn't weaken, he didn't waver, but he moved forward fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Church, here's the thing about Abraham. He was a flawed human being like me and you. Okay? He was once a lost sinner, far from God, saved by grace through faith. He was a man who was very imperfect, committed many sins, even after following the one true God. But what made his faith so incredible is that when things seemed truly impossible, he didn't doubt God. He kept trusting and walking in faith. Is that the kind of faith that we have? Abraham's faith gave him confidence in God. Does our faith do that, believers? Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is not weak, the way that so many people claim that it is? Well, personally, the people of greatest faith that I know are the strongest people I know. It's the people who claim to have no faith and have no foundation for life. They're the ones who falter when things get tough. But believers, do we have faith like Abraham? A faith that's confident in God? When God seems long in answering our prayers, when our situation seems to just drag on Forever, that health situation has been in our life, our whole life. When when we face loss and lack, when we move forward, do we move forward with the same confident faith that Abraham did, that he had? Or do we waver? Uh, Do we weaken that faith? Do we withhold from God the glory that he is due by trusting him? If you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've been justified by him. You've been adopted into God's family. And believers, we also ought to have confidence in the God who saved us, to see us through our situations. And the great thing, by the way, is that that confident faith will lead us to obedient faith. In fact, I'd encourage you to go home this week and read Abraham's story, and you will see that truth in his life, how his confident faith resulted in great obedience as well. Here's the thing about Abraham's faith. His faith brought justification. Believers, so does ours. His faith allowed him to experience God's grace. And guess what, believers? So does ours. His faith was also confident in God. Is that how we would describe our faith? If we can stand here and claim to be in the family of Father Abraham, then we need to ask, do we have faith like Abraham? I'm not telling you to model your life after him. That's not what I'm saying. But when we look at Abraham standing there at 99 years old and we see that firm faith that he had, that is something worth modeling ourselves after. He had faith even when things seemed impossible. And Christians, if we believe that Jesus can save us from the fiery pit of hell and from the depths of our own wickedness, then why would we doubt that he could rescue us from our temporary afflictions? Or why would we ever doubt his timing or his purposes or his plans and the things that we are going through? Church, let's strengthen our faith, let's strengthen what remains. Let's not waver, let's not grow weak. Instead, let's take away this truth this morning. Faith like Abraham is faith that trusts God in the hardest times. Our faith like Abraham is faith that trusts God in the hardest times. And maybe some of you are going through what you would describe as the hardest time. We've been praying the same thing over and over. It just feels like God is not answering or this difficulty you're going through just seems like it's never-ending. Or maybe there are some of us here who we read about the faith of someone like Abraham, and we say, yeah, but Andrew, he, he heard from God. God spoke to him. No, believers, God has spoken to us too. He's done that through his word, through the Bible. The problem is it's hard for us to have that same confident faith when we isolate ourselves from God's word, from God's people, and from God himself. So my encouragement to you, church, is that we would together seek God's will and his commands in the Bible, that we would come alongside one another to bear each other's burdens and encourage one another. You're not going to have that opportunity if you forsake the fellowship. Then let's seek God with a heart of prayer to know him more. Let's have a faith that is confident in him, no matter what situation we are going through right now. Believer, during this time of invitation, as we sing this final song, I'd encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer and examine your faith, examine your heart.
1: Maybe there are areas
0: where you know that you are doubting God, you're not trusting Him the way that you ought to. Bring that to Him in prayer. Or maybe you're simply going through a hard time and you need to lay that time at the Lord's feet. I'd encourage you to do that. Please know that during these final songs, you can come to the front and pray here at the altar. Somebody, I'm sure, will come and pray alongside you. But if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, I need you to understand something, something that you'll hear from lots of people outside these walls, that you'll hear in some churches, that you'll hear from some people. They will tell you that, you know what, you're a good person. And because of that, pff, I'm sure you'll be fine when this life is over. But friend, you need to understand that that, that is a lie. And the Bi- you will never find that in the Bible. The Bible makes some things really clear. It clearly tells us that you and me, all of us, we have sinned. We've broken God's commands. And the just punishment for our sin is to be separated forever from God after this life in a place called hell. That's the bad news. And the bad news gets worse because our good works can't make up for that. We can never do enough good things to make up for the bad things that we have done. There is no chart. There is no scale. There is no work in our way to heaven. The good news is that in his great love for me and you, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. Jesus did the thing that we can't do. He lived a perfect life. And because he was perfect, he could take our place and take our punishment. That's what he did when he died on the cross. That's why he died on the cross. That was the point of dying on the cross, was to take our punishment. After he died, he was buried, and three days later, he powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He's the only one who can save us. And the moment we put our faith in him, his righteousness is put on our account. We're finally made right in God's sight. And if you have never done that, please know that you can do that before you leave here today. Let's pray together. Friend, if that's true for you, if you're here and you know that Jesus isn't your Savior, you don't have to leave the way that you came in. The Bible says that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not whoever will work hard enough, go to church often enough, or tithe big enough. doesn't say any of those things. It's whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And friend, if you've never done that, but you're finally ready to, please understand, you can come talk to me during this final invitation song. You can bring your questions or we can pray together. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, please know that you can do that where you're sitting. No matter what you're going through right now or what you've done, go to Jesus in prayer and in faith. Admit to him that you know you're a sinner, but that you know you need him to save you. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who's never made that decision, that they would before they leave. And for those of us who have, who have gone to Jesus in faith for the salvation of our soul, help us to be a people faithful to go to you in all the situations that we face. And help us to grow in our faith, to learn to trust you more day by day. Because sometimes things, things do get hard. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing that confuses us. But instead of doubting you, I pray that you would help us to run that much more into your arms. That we would be dedicated to seeking your will that you've revealed to us in your word. That you would help us have a heart of prayer. And that you would show us the joy of being with our fellow believers. I pray that this would be a church that knows what it is to encourage one another to comfort one another, to rejoice and mourn with each other. Teach us what it means to really be family in Jesus Christ. And I praise you that through faith in Jesus, that is what we are. We are family. Father, we love you. But your great grace proves time and time again that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.